everybody, this is Mike Burkholder with Contra Costa News, a podcast for the people and businesses of Contra Costa County. I'm here with Jelani Killings, Pittsburgh City Council member and candidate for District 5 Contra Costa County Board of Supervisors. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here today. Excited to be here, be able to talk to the residents of Contra Costa County. It is very exciting. It's been a minute. It's been a whole week since I've seen you. <laughs> yes, we, yes. Uh, we went from a complete amazing place in Antioch, uh, Ron Bernal's kickoff at Sean McCauley's place, and now you get basically a closet. So welcome <laughs> back to the little people. No, no, happy <laughs> to be here, and definitely thank you for being able to join you on this platform, uh, because you have far reach here in Contra Costa County, and I think it's important for residents to be able to get the information. I agree, and you know, before we get into this, Seriously, is this like the quietest primary you've ever seen, been a part of? It's March 5th. There's an election. Nobody's even like, who are these candidates? What are they doing? Have everybody made up their mind? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the the short time frame and turnaround for this uh, primary season has really caught a lot of people off guard, even just sharing with voters in the district, you know, not even knowing that we have an election coming up in March. Uh, for most people, they probably remember that our primaries used to be in June, you know, but then we had some changes, you know, in terms of California wanting to be earlier in the presidential primary, and now we have them in March. And so uh, it's a quick turnaround. And even when I thought about, you know, signs going up around town, you weren't seeing much, you know, for the past couple of months, but now that we're about a month or so out, you're seeing them pop up everywhere and, and folks are trying to let people know, hey, ballots are coming out, you know, within the next few days. Um, and trying to get the word out to get that turnout up. That's been a big thing, especially in primary elections. You know, the voter turnout is typically lower in primary elections. So I think that's the work of candidates as well, as far as our, you know, elections division in the county, just to let people know, hey, this is an opportunity. This is as important as the general election uh, to get voters to turn out and be get, uh, get that representation. Yeah, I, you know, I never really thought about the impact of June to March. But I know you announced back in July, and then you go into the holidays. So November, December, basically shot. How has that impacted you as a candidate? And I'll now get into all the questions in a minute. I'm actually generally curious about that. Yeah, it's definitely uh, different, right? So being able to run a couple of campaigns for Pittsburgh City Council, you're typically thinking, you know, summertime, you're announcing, and you're running on the campaign, and a lot of events going on throughout the summer, going into the fall, but this was definitely different. Um, even as I announced, as you shared back in July, you're heading into that season uh, where you're trying to just let people know that there's an election coming up. Nobody's really thinking about, you know, something far off in March. And to your point, you know, the holiday season, you know, your people are out just trying to enjoy the holidays and be with the family. And you're talking about vote for me or trying to raise money for, for an election. Um, so it definitely had a different feel in terms of this campaign season. Um, and then once again, with the expansion of territory that has to be covered. So just focusing on Pittsburgh in times past, but now you're going all the way out to the West End, all the way out to Hercules. Uh, so there's a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time, but have been really uh, excited about reaching out to residents throughout the district. Uh, we feel that we're building some good momentum with the campaign. Absolutely. So, so who is Jelani Killings? And give us your quick little background. Yeah, thank you. So... Uh, man, serving on the Pittsburgh City Council for the past eight years. So I was first elected in 2016, 
Um, just personally about myself, you know, I grew up in the city of Pittsburgh, uh, graduated from Pittsburgh High School, uh, was able to go off to college, uh, Clark Atlanta University, where I earned my uh, bachelor's in business administration, uh, came back home, started getting engaged and involved uh, in local nonprofit work and doing work with our youth around college and career readiness. Um, and then in 2013, I went back and I got my master's in public policy and management. Um, and really, that's where I start turning my eye towards what's happening at the local level, uh, getting involved with local government. Uh, I served uh, four years on Contra Costa County's Economic Opportunity Council, which really just opened up my eyes in terms of what we're doing to empower people to be at that place of self-sufficiency. Uh, and when once again, getting involved in local government, which led me to my run in 2016, and so for the past eight years, serving on the Pittsburgh City Council, we've made a lot of progress. My eye has really been on good governance, and I know we can talk about that uh, from a standpoint of government accountability, government transparency. Um, and for the past 10 years in my professional work, I've worked for the City of Oakland and their Public Ethics Commission. So that's an independent body in the city of Oakland, uh, really charged with trying to promote and build public trust in our local government institutions. Uh, as difficult as a thing that that may be in this time and hour, um, it's all about looking at ethics from, you know, making sure there's no conflicts of interest, looking at use of city resources, um, and ensuring that there's transparency in government. And I'm big on that. I think I've brought some good initiatives and some work with that even to the city of Pittsburgh. But my eye has really been on good governance and how do we hold ourselves accountable as elected officials and as local government agencies for the limited tax dollars uh, that we're expending? And ultimately, are we improving the quality of life for the residents within our jurisdiction? Going off script, because this has nothing to do with Contra Costa County, is Oakland as bad as the media makes it, or is it better or worse? You know, I, I think <laughs> there, there, there's always definitely a narrative that can be exaggerated. Um, and so there are things that are definitely not going in the right direction. I think when you look at budget deficits in terms of uh, how money is being expended, you look at a public safety aspect um, in terms of the, the crime, especially homicides that have been increasing. Uh, dude, 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 you guys are losing in and out in Denny's. <laughs> yeah, you're seeing a lot of that. There's a lot of policies that have definitely directly impacted businesses, not only in our local cities, uh, but you can see throughout the region and the state in terms of policies that have really made it hard for businesses to be able to survive. Uh, and we really have to take that into account in terms of what type of environment we're building uh, for our businesses and also for our residents. Yeah, because I, I mean, I'm not going to pick on Oakland all time but i mean you look at like antioch all the businesses they've lost you guys lost pittsburgh i mean lost uh target in pittsburgh yes. i mean explain that impact yeah that's a big thing um definitely in terms of services for our residents in the city and there's a number of things that we can look at with that so uh, when you look at Target, when you look at their demographics, obviously when they're talking about sales, uh, their sales weren't uh, at the higher volume that you're seeing maybe in uh, Sand Creek out here uh, over where off of Lone Tree you have the Antioch Brentwood border target, and then you also go out to maybe Pleasant Hill and then Walnut Creek. Um, so it was more of the lower sales volume overall. And then when you add on top of that, the impacts of Prop 47, I think is something that uh, Target really tried to hone in on um, as they shared about the reason for closing their doors. But we know that there was a multitude of things that factored into that. But you look at Prop 47, the amount of theft that they were seeing in terms of loss and product and revenue, um, that was a big contributor 
in Pittsburgh. We really tried to work with them to reduce that. Our police department did an excellent job. And really over the past year and a half, we saw a reduction in the terms of the number of uh, retail theft that was happening at that site. But over the course of maybe three, five years or so, uh, those impacts were just too much to overcome. And so that's a reality uh, that we're facing not only in the city of Pittsburgh or even in Contra Costa County, but just in the state of California, we're seeing organized retail theft. Um, and one thing that I really want to highlight is that policy matters. So uh, everybody, you know, when we were in 2014, we had a lot of elected officials. Uh, we know that it was a ballot initiative that was posed as safer communities and safer neighborhoods. Um, and that ultimately uh, adopted where we see the $950 threshold. Um, and then you fast forward 10 years later and you see the impact that it has. So for me, it's being able to recognize that as an elected official, as someone that sets policy, and once again, for the accountability to make sure that when we're adopting policies that we're looking at the both intended and unintended consequences and ultimately the impact that it will have on the long term. Yeah, and I, and I know that a lot of that also has to do with the district attorney, which, you know, is an elected position. So it's not like a board of supervisors come out and go, what the hell are you doing, lady? But the district attorney's office should be holding people to the accountability that the law will allow. And that's not happening. And they're picking and choosing the cases based on what they think they could win, not whether it's right or wrong. But um, that's a whole nother topic. And I don't want to waste your time on that. Well, it's, it's an important topic. It, it's huge. Yeah, around public safety. And I'll just make it quick in terms of that point, right? So you have a balance of justice, right? So in the county level, you have the public defender's office who provides, you know. They got a uh, lot of money. Law, they law. just got a lot. They got a raise, like two point something right. million dollars. So they provide legal defense for folks that don't have it on their own. Um, but then you have the district attorney's office. And one's uh, job is specifically to prosecute and the other is to defend. But when they're both, in essence, doing the same thing, uh, the balance is, is tilted in a way that we're seeing some of the impacts on our community. So I think that your point is well taken in terms of there's a lot of frustration in terms of how crimes are being prosecuted, uh, which also, you know, goes to our local police departments who are doing great work to try to keep our communities safe. Um, but if they're out doing their work and maybe someone is detained and then the next day they're right back on the streets doing the same thing, I think the public has seen it. You know, you see a news article where someone was arrested and then the rap sheet says, yeah, seven, eight <laughs> times over the past two years. It's like, where's the accountability and how are we making sure that we're keeping our communities safe? So with that, the DA is a directly elected official. Um, and where that collaboration happens with the Board of Supervisors is that we oversee the budget, right? We set the budget for these departments within the county. And I think there has to be more conversation about the impacts of departments, the work that they're doing, performance measurements are key, the outcomes that we're seeing, and making sure that we're holding ourselves accountable when it comes to the dollars that we're spending and ultimately the programs and services that are also because, being put because, into place. Uh, you know, you, you look at last March when they were doing the budget, maybe it was March or June, and they got that 2 point, I think it was 2.3 million, basically because Antioch police officers are bad, um, some Pittsburgh, but... What has been accomplished since then? That That's what I want to see. I haven't seen anything. Let's get a report. Right. 
Uh, so I, I'm, I'm big on that. And that's really one of the key aspects of my platform when I say good governance is that what are the performance measurements? What are the outcomes? What are the indicators that we're looking at to show that we're actually having success or what we're doing is working? Um, it's something that I brought to the Pittsburgh City Council. I served on the government performance subcommittee. Um, and through that, we were able to create basically a performance dashboard as public uh, when it comes to our goals and priorities, but also something that staff can use to say, hey, how are we aligning not only with council goals, but making sure that we're showing the community the impact of the work that we're doing. So when we say that at the county level, we need performance measurements. Some of them are already within the county's budget, so they do have some performance measurements, but how are we holding it accountable in terms of the outcomes? Yeah. Uh, the last piece of that is that I really want to see more work done with the city auditor. Um, the county auditor, excuse me, uh, because the first thing that I did, you know, in terms of looking to run in this race is let me look at the performance audits that have been done on these programs and these departments by the county auditor. I couldn't find them online. Um, so that was one thing that was already frustrating to me as a resident was where can I find these performance audits to make sure these programs are not only being held fiscally responsible, but once again, the impact that they're having uh, in these discussions as we're talking about budget and where we're going to expend our resources. So I would like to see more collaboration with the county auditor, giving them the resources they need to provide the performance audits and making sure that they're publicly accessible so that the public can see the dollars that are being spent on department services and programs and and ultimately the outcomes that we're seeing for those dollars being spent. All right, we'll jump there. So you made that point in one of your videos that you want, you know, tax dollars being spent versus outcome received. What, what's kind of the, and this is kind of a loaded question, but what are the measurables you want to see? Because yeah. outcomes could be different for different people. They could have different meanings. Yeah, well, outcomes really, so if if we're looking at, let me say, Homelessness in general. Let's let's talk that. That's a big issue for okay, time everybody. Out, time out. Have you driven by Wilbur lately? I, I have. I have seen what's going on in Wilbur. And Antioch just shouldn't they have to do something with that? They should because obviously there there's public health and safety issues that are going on there. And then once again, as we're talking about homelessness and our ability to address it. I think the lack of coordination has already been exposed. So one aspect uh, that we've seen statewide is that there's a lack of coordination between all the dollars that are being spent and the service providers that are providing, whether it's the wraparound services or their coordination between counties and cities. That's a big issue. Um, so just over, say, the past four years, from 2019 to 2023, uh, do you know how much money has been spent by the county on homelessness services? Too much. So we're looking at about $170 million. Um, so then you ask yourself, what do we get for $170 million? Uh, what is the expectation, right? And so over that same amount of time, we've seen an increase in homelessness of about 4%, right, countywide. So when we're looking at that now, we say, okay, so $172 million over the past four years, that's a significant amount of money. Uh, look at the same time period over four years, homelessness has increased what do we learn from that, right? So is something working? Is it just simply expanding beds? Um, or is there something deeper? And I think for a long time, the conversation was simply, this is just a housing issue. If we had more housing, then we would solve this, um, which is part of the problem, but they would totally negate the aspect of substance use and also the mental health problem. Uh, well, the drug and addiction, I mean, that, that was ignored. And now it's all about drug and addiction. Then you're going to forget about the housing. It's a circle Blah, 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 blah. Which, right? which goes back but to the But you guys, and, and you guys kind of seen this firsthand with Delta Landing. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. What's been the impact that you've seen? Yeah, and this is where another aspect between county and city collaboration where it needs to be improved. So uh, as this happened, we know back in 2020 and during the pandemic, governor had this idea of Project Room Key. Um, and so he provided state dollars in order to start purchasing hotels. Uh, the county jumped on board and said, hey, you know, we want to purchase, you know, this Motel 6 and turn it into uh, uh, a homelessness housing. Um, and so what we ha had happened there was there was no real collaboration with the city of Pittsburgh, right? No one talked about the impact that it would have on our city. No one talked about the long-term sustainability of the project. And so what uh, immediately happened is, as a city, we lose up to $400,000 annually because now we don't receive the transit occupancy tax that comes from hotels. So we immediately take a hit as a community by losing hundreds of thousands of dollars that come to our community to provide service for our residents. So that's already a big hit and kind of no coordination or teamwork on that aspect. But then you look at immediately when it opened up, we started seeing uh, encampments pop up right around the, the, the shelter. So right on Loveridge Road, you would see encampments pop up, you know, on, on, on the sidewalks, uh, right even outside of the facility. Maybe just a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, the, a little corner right next to uh, Highway 4 where all of a sudden an encampment was starting to grow. So it was saying, okay, uh, if this is going to be in our community, how are you going to ensure that it's going to be sustainable, uh, that you're going to make sure it doesn't uh, become a blighted area or an eyesore in our community? And then once again, share with us in terms of the success overall for the long term. Uh, my uh, issue and concern as a city council member in the city of Pittsburgh is the long-term sustainability, right? So the state gives you this one-time fund to purchase this building, but now you want to provide a number of services that are going to have ongoing costs. Are you committed to paying that in 10 to 15 years? Let's not even say 10 to 15, in five years, right? So are you going to have the funds to sustain this operation so that you're maintaining the cleanliness of the site, you're maintaining the services so that once again, it doesn't become a blight or a burden to the city of Pittsburgh and our residents. And I think that that's already starting to come to light where there's conversations that the county is saying, hey, cities may need to kick up some dollars in order to sustain some of these but programs. You guys, but you guys are because you, you have an increased police services in the area. Contra Costa County Fire and AMR have had to respond right. probably once a day at least. Um, which then that impacts the rest of the system. So taking what you guys have learned at Delta Landing, how could you apply that to the county? Yeah, once again, I think it's the coordination, right? So if you have service providers or if you have a facility that is within a community, making sure that, one, uh, that there's uh, coordination between not only the local police department, not only your community-based organizations and your service providers, but also the willingness of the county to ensure that they're properly maintaining any sites that they are taking control over. So this is not only dealing with homelessness services, but I've even heard from council members in Martinez about the impact to say the county jail or even the hospital when you have emergency services and folks come for these services and if they're in certain conditions and all of a sudden this is where they are to receive that service, this is now where they've landed in the community. And if they don't have either the wraparound services or the proper management from the county, then all of a sudden you've now put a burden on cities, even as you're trying to provide important services that may be needed, it still has to have a partnership to make sure it doesn't become a burden on that community. Hey, I tell you what, people want to see what's going on with these homeless responses. They need to go look at that November meeting from Martinez and how they grilled their response team. 
it was incredible. It was like, finally, some people are asking questions. And I think that needs to go on from the County Board of Supervisors even more because I think Martinez hit a home run. Setender just crushed it. And what are you hearing? Because I know we're so focused on East County, that's where we're at. But when you're going over to Hercules, Martinez, what what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Yeah, and so as I just shared, uh, just briefly in terms of even the Martinez, uh, just in terms of responsiveness from the county, right, being a good partner. So if county has facilities that are in an area, you know, and is serving uh, some of our marginalized community members, once again, making sure that you have the proper management of these facilities and also making sure that it's not becoming a burden on that community, right? Uh, the second is that, you know, we also – The main thing, even for the county, is our unincorporated areas, right? That's a big factor uh, where folks are feeling like their voice isn't being heard. I've been in Rodeo, uh, being out in Crockett and some of these areas. You can even look at Bay Point, where you drive through these cities and you'd also wonder just like, man, what is going on? Am I in a whole different region? Third third world country. (laughs) Right. And, and, And the residents feel that neglect. Right. And so I've spent a lot of time even out on the west end of the county um, and just lifting up even the residents that are in the city of Rodeo. Right. And for them is making sure that there's responsiveness. Right. So is the sheriff uh, coming through, you know, they have a substation, but is it uh, properly being managed? Is it being staffed Uh, when it comes to blight? And uh, a lot of the impact in the community uh, is public words coming out to making sure that we're maintaining and addressing illegal dumping or blighted areas. Uh, They're in a place right now. So when you think of your unincorporated areas, they need more attention than even more so than some of our cities that are incorporated. Right. Because in Pittsburgh, we have a city council that responds to the needs of the residents that they can come to. But our unincorporated areas, they're counting on the board of supervisors. They're counting on that district representative to be there on the ground to see what's impacting them and to be able to be responsive and bring the needed services to help that community. So that's been a big thing that I've heard and going out throughout the district, especially on the West End, is they want representation that will actually be responsive, that will communicate with them, that will be there in their area to see what's going on and also bring solutions to address some of their quality of life issues. And again, I'm going to go back to the measurables. Like what I still don't understand is the county's giving all this money direction but they're they're not really focused on measurables and how would you bring that to the county like what would what would be your ideal and i'm and again this for every department it's going to be a little bit differently um but how do you look at measurables yeah and as you shared like it could be different from each department right so i think the first thing as you're looking at just let me ask that before you answer let me ask that a different way what do you want to see more of Oh, for me personally, um, so when we look at public safety, I think that you have to make sure that you have the coverage in terms of responsiveness, right? So you can look at that from whether it's uh, the the call time in terms of how long it takes for someone to respond to a emergency call, whether that's fire, whether that's the sheriff's department, police, public safety, law enforcement. Uh, you can look at in terms of the violent crime, property crime that's within an area. And a lot of these, some people will say, are more lagging indicators, but they are indicators nonetheless in terms of where are we going as a community? Is it getting safer? Are we addressing certain needs? I think some of the more pressing things that you can look at with some of more of the social services that we're looking at is, right, so in terms of the processing times, right, so if somebody is trying to do, whether it's building a department and they're trying to get a permit, how long is that process for them to get through that for a local business that wants to open up within the community? 
I think from a social services aspect, right? So the goal of it all is self-sufficiency, right? We want to see people get to this place that if they're needing county services because maybe they qualify because of their income. So whether that's, uh, you know, CalFresh, whether you're talking about workforce development programs, uh, even when you're talking about housing as well. So the, 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 the focus should be self-sufficiency. How many people are moving towards self-sufficiency where they're no longer needing that type of subsidized assistance? Uh, because the goal shouldn't be to maintain the status quo, right? The goal shouldn't be more people in our county are needing these services. That shouldn't be the metric that we're looking at is how are we moving more people to a place of self-sufficiency? And that's really where my eye would be um, in trying to work with the department heads and the service providers to start seeing the outcomes. We're seeing more people move towards an upward trajectory and not more just an expansive of people that need those services. See, and that's where I think the board has failed not this past board, but literally this past board and three or four separate boards, you know, the last 15 years, 16 years, they have not provided a hub for services in other parts of the county. It's all centrally located. I understand that. But people from Richmond, San Pablo, I mean, they're not going to drive all the way to Martinez all the time, just as Brentwood, Oakley, Antioch's not always going to go to Martinez because transportation is a huge issue. What are your thoughts on these hubs of access to service being placed throughout the county to make more equity everywhere? That, that, that's a great point, right? Because everybody because, says that every election, but they don't do it. Right. And, and, and around that, right, because we're seeing the same thing even with homelessness, right? If you plant one in one community, you don't have it with another, you just create a magnet, right? And so that's an issue there. But to your point about just overall services, right? There's something that we've seen even with like the Family Justice Center. So we just got one out here in East County maybe a few years back. It's located in Antioch. You have one in Concord. Um, and then also when you look at in terms of kind of your one-stop shop, which is the model that we're seeing needs to be implemented more. And so even how do we utilize our county libraries, right, as that type of point of entry or being able to provide <laughs> services, right? They got a van. <laughs> A mobile van for but, the library. But the point is, right, I think there's a, a level of consolidation that's needed to say, hey, we may need to consolidate resources to making sure that we have kind of these hubs for services for our community members. If somebody needs access, whether it's to the Family Justice Center, maybe it's during, dealing with domestic violence, but they also need access to CalFresh, they need access to CalWorks or whatever it may be, can they come to one facility and get all of those things met instead of, to your point, having to go to two, three, maybe even four different places to get what they need, which also becomes a barrier because you start talking about transportation, you start talking about childcare, you start talking about just time, and folks may not Help have gas the, money. Right. <laughs> in the times that we're living in, uh, that's a real concern and a real constraint. So I think that these are valid points in that when we talk about, once again, kind of this accountability and these measurements, these are the type of things that we're looking at in terms of, you know, the service levels, the number of people that are coming through and, and needing a certain service. If there's overlap in a service that somebody needs with another agency or another department, how are we trying to consolidate that to remove those barriers? Uh, those are all ongoing conversations, right? There's no like, 
like, oh, one time we looked at this, and so we made this decision to move this direction. It's a constant feedback loop. It's a constant look at in terms of working with our department heads. And I think this is another area around good governance, right? We're in this place now where elected officials kind of think they know more than the professionals that are hired to do their jobs, right? And so there's a medium, right? As elected officials, we should know the pulse of the community. There should be a little bit more of an urgency in terms of getting things done, but it has to be a collaborative effort with those that are hired in these department positions to be able to bring forward solutions that are actually effective and even look at the capacity that we have within our departments to do it. What's kind of your idea of something you'd want to implement? So one is, one is, once again, dealing with kind of this more of a dashboard for seeing how we are uh, spending our dollars so that the public can go in and be able to look at audits for different performance measurements and outcomes. I think for me personally, it's not more so about creating anything new. We have this place now where we have a lot of elected officials where it's like, hey, I want to create this new program or, hey, I want to, you know, do this new initiative. And sometimes they may be warranted. uh, But the thing about government is we love to kind of tout that we're spending new money without even showing any results for the money that we're spending. So for me, I keep going back to the accountability. But when you talk about where my focus would be. One is I think there has to be a greater emphasis on workforce development, right? So we have a workforce development department in the in the county. I think when you look at when we're trying to address poverty or we're looking at really where we're trying to get people to self-sufficiency, education and employment are two of the biggest factors when it comes to seeing people have upward mobility and increasing their financial position, right? But it doesn't seem like the focus is really there from a county perspective. It's kind of trying to take a Band-Aid approach uh, and really work on the margins as opposed to what's really benefiting the whole. Uh, I was able to watch and I encourage people to go watch the county board of supervisors had their annual retreat uh, this past Tuesday, and I really thought that their uh, economic consultant laid out some great points of just data um, and trends, right, and really brought out the, the, the focus of narrative versus reality, right? And so there are a lot of narratives that are going out about a lot of different issues, but what's the reality? What's the actual impact that's being made? And around that, you know, is that wages are increasing. Um, We're seeing a lot of different impacts in terms of workforce where we need more labor. Uh, If you talk to your local businesses, a lot of them are struggling just to keep workers on board. Uh, At a local level, they're just looking for folks that have the skills, uh, even just from a professional standpoint point that will show to work on, show up to work on time. And these are the type of things I think that if we focus on from a workforce development standpoint, that will not only benefit our local businesses, but also ensuring that residents have more of an upward mobility, that they have the skill sets. Uh, we have Los Madonnas College. We have the Contra Costa Community College District uh, right here in our county. And those have proven to be great workforce development programs and getting more people to take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, I think that we'll see more better outcomes. Uh, here in the county for residents, especially those that are impacted in terms of at the lower uh, income levels here in our county. Yeah, see, I think federal Glover shit the bed when it comes to that whole press release that went out about what that meeting was. He made it about diverse, equitable, inclusive, accessible programs. The county shit the bed on that because you have all these workforce development, economic people at the county that are providing great services, if he would have highlighted that stuff, it would have been a home run. But instead you made it about something it shouldn't have been. 
Yeah, and I think we're seeing that type of narrative uh, not only here in the county and the state, but throughout the nation. And I think once again, when you're when you're kind of putting narratives out there that can, in some cases, create more division than bringing folks together. Uh, I think when we're seeing even around the diversity, the equity, the inclusion, I think you can draw from that, right? If I'm working for the county and I'm a staffer uh, and you're telling me essentially that I'm doing my job in a biased way, I think once again, that can have some rippling effects, right? And so I think that we have to be mindful as leaders because if we say that, hey, we want to increase the pool of folks uh, that may be not represented in a certain area, there's ways to go about that without saying that something is being done intentionally, right? I think that that's the big kind of underlining tone of it all is that there's this thought that we're intentionally or that the institution of the county is carrying out racist practices, right? And I think that we have to be mindful when we go that direction because you're essentially telling the people that are carrying out those services that, hey, you may be carrying it out, right, in a, in a racially biased way. Um, and so I say that, you and know. The sad, the, but the sad part to piggyback on that is that those services should be there. They should be promoted. They should be made available. But you don't need the rhetoric. Right. And I think that, once again, from the accountability standpoint, is that if we're saying that, you know, we're trying to look at these disparities, right? But if we're just talking about access to services and making sure that it's, you know, accessible to all members of the community, then the burden of proof would have to be on those that are advocating for these policies, right? So show me that folks are being denied because of their race. They're being denied these county services, right? That would be a, a real conversation, right? That, hey, these folks are coming for these county services and they're being denied, right? I think that the overall uh, approach towards trying to get equal outcomes is really misleading. And I think that's the narrative that they're not outright saying. Uh, so when we say diversity, equity, inclusion, I think that everybody's on board that we want to have, whether it's representation or services available to all members of the community. No that's, doubt. that's without saying, right? But if we're, say, talking about those who are low income, right, say zero to 30 percent of the, the area's median income, right, there's no way that you can say that that person has to have the same outcome as the person that's, say, making uh, 60, 80, 100 percent of the area median income. There's too many differing factors. Right. So obviously there could be education differences. There could be just the, the, the job that that individual has. There's so many factors that go beyond just a person's race or a person's identity, right? And so the county or governments in general are trying to put dollars in a space to create equal outcomes for everybody. And I think that that's just a misconception well, and there's no happen, way that, that it can happen. It's right. not going to happen because it's utopia. Exactly. But they're, they're or not, socialism. Right. And I, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm not afraid to call that out, right? And I think that that's what we need from leaders to be truthful with those that we're representing, right? There's no way that I can tell somebody, once again, that's making zero to 30% of the area median income that they're going to have the very same outcome as somebody that's making 100% of the area median income. Now, what you can do is support them and with programs that will help them towards upward self-mobility. And once again, I go back to education and employment being the best uh, uh, supports and really the best indicators to help when it comes to addressing some of those economic disparities. Yes, because uh, you you put in your, sorry to cut you off, but you put in your, one of your three main items was economic development, right? So you want to increase support for small businesses 
You want to champion additional investment for workforce development. Kind of explain your ideas there of how you want to better help small businesses. Yeah, so I Other think, than maybe like fixing their windows from all the crime. Yeah, I think once again, <laughs> it goes back to when you're looking at in terms of permitting, I think that's where it starts at the at the entry, right? So what what is the burden for someone to open up a business within the county or within the jurisdiction? And so I'm making sure that we're streamlining those type of permitting processes. We've done the same thing in Pittsburgh. We're trying to increase in terms of folks that want to open up a business. You don't want it to take six months to a year for somebody to come in and get their permitting to be able to open up a business. So that's one aspect, making sure that you have the staff to currently process any type of development or business permits. I think on the other end is that you want to make sure for our local businesses that they want to make sure that they're in an environment where they can thrive, right? So if there's a lot of safety or if they're dealing with a lot of homelessness issues or blight, that's something that should be on the onus of our local government. Right. So we spend a lot of time even in Pittsburgh with trying to put more money in towards our infrastructure and beautification. Right. Because the worst thing that someone wants to see when they're trying to go to a business is a bunch of blight. Why would I want to stop at that business if it's not looking at a place that's conducive for me to spend my dollars? So that's another area. Uh, and then also, I think even as I've been having conversations with folks out in Rodeo, so on Parker Avenue, which is the main thoroughfare when you're going into Rodeo that leads to their waterfront, um, when you're driving through, you know, you could feel like, man, where am I at? Or am I in a ghost <laughs> town? Or what 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 is going to cause me to stop driving through to notice that there's businesses here? So it could be simple. I know we talked, you said kind of, kind of the fixing the window, but simple facade improvements or beautification, making sure that, you know, cross crosswalks are properly painted. Maybe it's a simple banner on a light pole or on a street light that lets people know that you're here and that there's businesses in this area. So there's a lot of small things that can be done. Uh, government can't fix or run a business for them, but they can create an environment that is conducive for businesses to thrive. And that would be my focus from a small business development. We focused a little bit on the workforce development. The last piece for me with economic development is around the infrastructure, right? So I think CCTA, uh, the Transportation Authority, ha has been great in terms of kind of trying to open up regionally around transportation. Uh, but I think there's more of a focus uh, specifically on the county's adopted Northern Waterfront Initiative. So this is there is right. I haven't seen anything in a decade. Right, and so I, I share that is that there is a, you can say a vision that has been put out there, but there hasn't been a lot of legwork, collaboration, or really momentum or accountability around bringing it to fruition. So one thing is that, you know, we have a historical industrial legacy on our waterfront, and we know that from Hercules all the way to the city of Antioch in District 5. Uh, but as we're looking at revitalization, we know that these old industries that have gone away, there is very costly remediation that is needed, right? So in order to, you know, make sure that somebody else can come on and build, they got to clean up these sites first, which is really a barrier for a lot of investment in that space. Um, the second is that it can't just be focused on industry, right? So we should be carving out more access to the water for residents in Contra Costa County, especially in our communities. Um, so these can become, you know, if you say tourists or more recreation, entertainment type destinations. So it can't just be, hey, we had old industry that fell down and now we want to create just more new industry. There should be a mix now in terms of recreation, entertainment access for the waterfront with commercial amenities, as well as being able to uh, keep some of that industrial base for future job centers. Okay. So, okay, smart guy. Let me ask you this then, but I'm being smart ass. How do we actually get something started? 
Yep. Because every election I hear federal, oh, Northern Waterfront. North. Look, nothing's been done other than a few little meetings. But how do we actually start to see progress from words on the, like, measurables? Yeah. So a big part of it is that, right, so especially when you're talking about really your incorporated cities, your Antioch, your Pittsburgh, your Martinez, your Hercules, right? The land use decisions are within their purview. Right? 100%. 100%. So, so the county... Although re- you guys did a pretty good job in Pittsburgh. Yeah, we're and we're definitely making strides. We have an economic development strategic plan. We have an awesome community economic development director, Jordan Davis, uh, as well as an awesome planning division and really awesome staff throughout the board to where we're, we're working at the same pace with the shared vision um, to create not only job centers, but open up more recreation and commercial opportunities. But when we look at, you know, the, the planning and the zoning for these areas, that's on the cities, but we need the county to participate and collaborate uh, so they understand what the zoning is. You have county supervisors of the county as a whole. You know, they love to lobby state legislators for things that they desire. So I know Grayson, uh, Assembly Member Grayson, had put in kind of this green infrastructure zone, which we'll see how that all works out in terms of kind of what they're looking at for green industry. But really the point that I want to get at is, say, look at the city of Pittsburgh. So we've created what's called an Enhanced Infrastructure Financing District, an EIFD. And so this was a tool when you look at, you know, redevelopment in times past, this is a tool that the state has given for cities to try to help with infrastructure, amenities, uh, housing, and things like that is tax increments. Um, So essentially you're saying, hey, we have a lot of underutilized site within our jurisdiction, uh, and we believe that there's going to be future development there. And we believe that that future development will have a certain tax increment, and we want to be able to pull a portion of that to go towards specific projects that will enhance, whether it's economic development, enhance our infrastructure, enhance housing. And so the city of Pittsburgh, we've moved that direction. And so when you have EIFDs and you look throughout the state for those that have had it, typically the county will also join with that city in order to put more money into the pot, right? So we're going to put 25% of that uh, projected growth into a pot and if you have the county put in another 25% or so now you really have some real dollars for the infrastructure improvements that are needed to attract that private investment as well as being able to move some projects forward and so right now the county's not willing to participate because they feel that if they do an EIFD with one city they'll have to do it for all but I'm calling their bluff on that because one you guys created this Northern Waterfront Initiative. So you've already said that there's economic development potential on our waterfront. So why would you not participate with cities that are moving in a direction to bring it to fruition to partner with them on a policy that you guys have already adopted? And so for me, it's about putting skin in the game. It's one thing to kind of talk about something, but another thing is to put some skin in the game, put dollars behind it. And I believe the county uh, is positioned to be able to help bring that uh that waterfront initiative to fruition by partnering with cities that are already doing the work. So you're, you should have a, a separate headline of Jelani Killings, Northern Waterfront. Just get the effort done. <laughs> well, there's definitely, I think we definitely need to get it done. I think that there's a lot of conversation around the job housing imbalance uh, in Contra Costa County as a whole, but also just really looking at East Contra Costa County as well. Well, and Oakley just got there. They're going to start doing their 55-acre park. Yes. Um, the, the issue you guys are going to have from Oakley now to Antioch is they've lost their Amtrak station. Now, that's Antioch's fault, regardless of the rhetoric the, the mayor wants to put out. Antioch's had that damn thing. They didn't add to it. The parking sucked. The crime. 
it was kind of like left out there and, oh, we got an Amtrak, but that, you know, whatever. So then you go down to Pittsburgh. You guys have done a great thing down there. And then from Pittsburgh to Bay Point, Bay Point's got a lot of legal dumping. Yeah. Um. So then Bay Point, was it Clyde or something? Yes. Clyde, then Martina. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go down the path, right? Mm-hmm. It's not easy to do the northern waterfront because the big, the best thing you could probably compare it to is what's going on at the Concord Naval Weapons Station. They can't even make a decision on that. Yeah, and that, 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 <laughs> that's a whole other conversation, right? Because you have to get everyone on the same page as far as a shared vision, right? A vision shared is not the same thing as a shared vision, right? And I think that we're, we're not doing a good job of bringing all of the different stakeholders together, right? So there's a lot of different interests, and that's just politics in itself. Labor has their interests. Environmentalists have their interests. Cities are trying to have their interests. Residents and homeowners have their interests. And you're trying to bring all this together for a collective shared vision. And so to your point, in terms of trying to get it across the finish line or get some traction, you have to bring folks together. We have to understand in terms of what it takes for development. If we make it more costly for development to happen, then we'll never see it, right? And so I think that that's something that we're really learning the hard way, especially here in California in the Bay Area is that the more pressure we put on developers, whether that's from a labor standpoint, an environmental standpoint, whether it's regulatory fees and all type of things that we're putting in place, we're getting in our own way. We say we want more housing production, but we make the cost of developing housing. Oh, no, we want more ADU. We want more ADUs. And the only development we could have now are in church parking lots. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) we don't, we have that, but other than that, developers are bad. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of that. And I think that, once again, that's that whole narrative versus reality. The reality is that we need developers to develop our communities, right? That's part of just how it works. We need that private investment. Government is not the best person when it comes to development. I think I just heard during that retreat I was just sharing with you about, about uh, I think it was uh, County Supervisor John Joya, who was just kind of talking about, you know, what it took to get an affordable housing uh, project done. And one, it took nearly over a decade. Uh, over a decade, 10 to 15 years or so, I believe. And then the cost per unit was like $700,000 at the end of it, right? And it's like, these are for apartment complexes. You can go get those Amazon houses for seven grand. Right. And they're the, fold up. But the point is the inefficiency, right, is that is that we're seeing government say, hey, we want something we get in the way by creating policies that make it, you know, infeasible for developers to actually do it and come in and build. And then we say, you know what, developers, you're not doing it. We're going to take it in our own hands. We don't have the money or the resources to build housing. Right. And so you see now a new regional body that's been developed and everybody's trying to jump on board who wants to put a, a measure on the ballot upcoming. I don't know if whether it's I don't think it's November, maybe 2026, that wants to basically create, you know, an infrastructure or a financing to develop affordable housing. And the reality is that if we would just get out the way, developers would develop. This is the hottest, you know, real estate market, you know, in the nation in terms of what you can get for development. Let's go back to Pittsburgh then, because you guys are very familiar with the little project you guys approved on the Hill with Sino. Mm Um. You guys got crucified as all being in Sino's pocket, all, all of you. I think it was a 5 0 vote. Right. And explain that by law, you guys kind of had to 
vote for it. Yeah, and once again, <laughs> this is where you have different interests. And so this is specifically talking about the Faria uh, Hills project. Um, this was something that was passed by voters, you know, uh, back in, I believe, in the 90s, you know, in terms of expanding the sphere of influence for the city and pre-zoning for residential development, right, in this area. And so I think that what's happened over the years, obviously there's a more focus on environment. There's more in focus of, you know, trying to protect hills which is understandable i think that we all appreciate the the ridge line we all appreciate the beauty of just kind of the natural landscape uh, but i also believe that there's a balance when it comes to property rights right and people who own property and their ability to develop on their property especially if it's been zoned for what they want to do on their property, right? So that's a big issue that came to light even in this project. And so the project is to build up to 1,500 units. Um, and really what I really want to highlight is that the project over the past couple of decades has been scaled down, right? So it created more of a buffer zone between the ridge line and, and in terms of where the development will happen. But it also concentrated the development into more of the valley area uh, because once once again, when you look at the footprint, it increased the open space by, I believe, a few hundred acres. Uh, and then it also tried to, uh, once again, put the development into an area that will have least impact on the ridge line. Is it perfect? No, no project's going to be perfect. No. But I think what we're looking at, one, from the need for housing, but also respecting in terms of not only was voted on by the voters, but also the, the, the rights of the property owner to develop on land that has been pre-zoned for that. Now, there's a number of other things that have to happen, right? So a lot of the friction came is that, oh, you guys are doing a program level EIR versus a project level EIR. So a program level is really more high level, looking at the number count of units and looking at just specific things that will be needed for the product to move forward. You do the EIR, you look at the traffic, you look at all of the impacts. The project level is, oh, we want to look at the exact layout in terms of where the streets will be, how it will be designed. That will have to come back at a future time. But even before we get to that, there's also other agencies that have to sign off. So you look at LAFCO, the county agency, that still has yeah, to sign off on right. So I think there's a lot of things that go up of like, oh, Pittsburgh City Council, how could you? This is just one piece. We're looking at development. We believe that it was not only the will of the voters, but it's also in the best interest of the growth of our city and also what we're seeing in the region in terms of the need. If there wasn't a need for this type of housing, developers wouldn't build it, right? And so I think that's a larger conversation, but finding that medium between, once again, the need for housing, protection of natural landscape, and the needs of those uh, around environment, but also, once again, local control of being able to move forward with the vision for the city. Um, and I think that once again, when it's all said and done, as we continue to see the build out of the city of Pittsburgh and even the region, I think that you're going to see a lot more people start to realize that, you know, the policies or some of the advocacy that we have is actually working against us um, as opposed to furthering some of the goals that we have around housing and affordability in the region. And, and that's where you just need smart planning, smart people, smart growth, all that smart stuff, right? But it also, this project in the bigger scheme of things also helped you guys get back a grocery store. Yes. Which yes. that's a huge win for Pittsburgh because I remember just was it three or four years ago. I know you were the, I think you were the only council member there that was at the rally. Give us back a grocery store. <laughs> and you got the, you know, the, the guy at the, Oh, we want to have a little 
grocery store with like 30 different businesses and said like no one wants that yeah and i think this is another good part <laughs> right around economic development right is that a city can't make wave a magic wand and make a business come or force a business to come sometimes a lot of the narrative and we even hear sometimes the community is why doesn't the council build this why are they doing that it's like well we're not the ones building it you're not uh, the experts right and so when you look at the grocery store specifically is that that took a lot of work um and once again going back to what i was sharing about creating the environment, right? So uh, retailers look for specific metrics when they're looking to go into a community, right? So they may look at the income, they may look at the number of housetops, they're going to look at the education level, they're even going to look at, you know, the number of people with passports and a number of other metrics they look at that works with their model for their demographic. Um, and so as a city, you know, what helped us was we did see a lot of growth um, in, the, in, the, in the Southwest region over there off of San Marcos, uh, which helped in terms of luring sprouts to come. Um, and then we had to make a decision. We had to rezone the land uh, where sprouts is. Uh, it used to be more, it was going to be an extension of the park that's directly adjacent to it, um, Jack and Melly Park. Uh, but we heard the needs of the residents. They said, hey, we need commercial development. We need services. And so we rezoned that parcel so that it could be able to initiate conversations for future commercial development. So that took maybe a couple years after we rezoned it. And now all of a sudden you have site selectors, you have the property owner working with folks in order to try to lure them to this location. So they see the development happening. They see the income levels of the area. Uh, and the last piece that they wanted before they came was that, hey, you have to improve this intersection. So we decided as a council, we're gonna improve that intersection to the tune of $700,000 to make a lighted intersection to be able to seal the deal to bring that sprouts and that much needed uh, service to our uh, residents that are in the southwest uh, portion of the city. And so that's just a part of the collaboration. It wasn't just the city, but it was working in concert with the landowner, working in concert with site selectors, working in concert in terms of your point, the long-term planning of the area. Uh, and we were able to bring much needed development. There hadn't been commercial development in that area of town in over 20 years. Um, so it wasn't a small feat. But now we believe that that will also be a catalyst for future commercial development, for future services in that area. And I think that these are things that we can learn from, from a policy standpoint, to help, you know, accelerate economic development in other areas. What are your thoughts on the whole economic development of uh, Buchanan and Byron Airport and utilizing those to create greater economic development for the whole area. Yeah, absolutely. I think any time that you have those type of assets, you know, within your community, they're what's underutilized. the highest and best they're use, totally right? Underutilized. Getting the highest and best use. So we know there's everything from kind of the drone testing aspect. You can look at more of the private flights, things like that. There's a lot of opportunity with being able to have, you know, airports within our, our, our county and having these two specifically. So I think overall is trying to open up these networks, especially when we're talking about Byron. We got to open up in terms of the path, make some more connections in terms of those regional routes, but you're absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of technology that is being uh, tested right now. We have uh, one, I believe it's Matador, that's out at the golf, future uh, old golf course in Pittsburgh that is uh, testing uh, medical drone supply and delivery. And so there's a lot of these type of industries that are popping up that are looking for space. But I think even to your point, just even from logistics, uh, these airports are big assets. I'm not sure 
sure what the specific plans are for the county in terms of what they may already be doing strategic plan wise, but definitely would be interested in terms of not only learning more, but being able to work with Supervisor Burgess, who that's within her district uh, to be able to help bring that to pass. She's been working really hard on that Byron Airport and people will never know just how much work she's put into that. And I mean, I, not a lot of it's public because they're still working stuff out. I don't even know. But I think in the, at the end of the day, it's going to be really good for the whole county. Absolutely. Um, you brought up the golf course. Why couldn't you guys just keep that open? Yeah, I think. Bring it back. Yeah, the, the largest thing was in terms of the financial commitment that was going to have to be put in to maintain it. And we didn't have that type of money. Uh, it was over, I believe, $250,000 that we'd have to put in annually to maintain it. Um, and so I know there was a lot of, uh, you know, pushback in terms of a survey that went out, um, but it was more than just a survey. You know, we have folks who were advocating to keep the golf course, but I think in the long run, when we talk about kind of just long-term planning, the future is going to be a lot brighter for that area, uh, I would say, in the coming five years or so. And I know folks are saying, well, you guys closed it, you know, over five years ago. So we're talking about a decade worth of nothing happening there. was there. a pandemic, relax. Right, right. But <laughs> in that, you know, so we said, hey, there's only a small percentage of the population in Pittsburgh that are utilizing this space currently. So we looked at it from an economic development standpoint. So half of that really about 100 acres, up to 100 acres of that 170-acre site is going to be used for a future, whether it's going to be just a data center or more of just kind of that technology office space. And then the other half, which is over 70 acres, we're utilizing for multi-use recreation, right? So right now we're proud. Uh, we have our dream courts being built right across the street that broke ground uh, over there. on that coming um, soon? On Leland, yeah. So they broke ground, and it should be ready probably towards the end of this year. Well, we'll see the dream courts, which is really for your kind of your AAU style. You know what bothered me about that is you had people, because it's Sino, just absolutely hate the product. I'm sitting there going, you people are nuts. Yeah. Who yeah. cares who builds the damn thing? Right. It's an asset for the community. It's something that we've heard time and time again that we need for youth. Uh, it's part of our vision for the city of Pittsburgh for youth sports tourism to be able to track that to the city of Pittsburgh. We have a number of youth who are in certain basketball competitive leagues who are having to go outside of the city. Their parents are having to take them over the hill or even go in the other direction. And so we believe that we need those amenities within our community. Um, so we're getting that built. It's going to be state of the art. It's going to be really the best one that you're going to see here in the region uh, once completed. And then right across the street, uh, once again, on the former golf course, we're going to start with the first phase of building uh, the premier fields uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. So that's multi-use, both soccer, whether you're losing it for lacrosse, football, track. And so we're going to have those amenities here in the city of Pittsburgh that will open it up. You know, more people will be able to utilize, whether it has trails to walk through in the park, amenities for families to take their, their families family too, to be able to utilize for recreation, more people are going to be able to utilize that space in the city than had in times prior. And I get it. There's an affinity for golf. I think you can look across the landscape around golf. It's, it's a struggle to keep those up and going right now. Um, but I think that in, in the future, folks are really going to be proud uh, and excited. And there's going to be tremendous benefit from the direction that we're going with that former golf course. Yeah. And, and I know you guys have a, a decent plan. Uh, I just wish the city would do a better job with their outreach, explaining what's actually going to happen in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with I you mean, on it's that. It's so frustrating. It's like, here's a flyer, but it's a day before, or, you yeah. know, I don't want to get into that because that's a whole different marketing discussion. Um, Measure X. Yes. What are your thoughts on how that funding is being allocated yeah, I think Measure X is going to be one of the critical components um, 
for, for the county board of supervisors moving forward. So you have a number of agencies, a lot of folks who are doing a lot of great work, and everybody's advocating for a piece of the pie, right? You're talking about, what, about $150 million that's coming in annually. And so everybody is reaching out to how can I get a piece of that? I think when you look at it, you know, it's I think it's the same thing, once again, from a city level and even going to the county level. Um what are your core functions, right? So a lot of folks will look at, you know, Measure X, and it was primarily to maintain and expand the county hospital and the services around that. You're looking at, you know, your fire infrastructure and your sheriff. And so there's a lot of dollars that are needed to just support the ongoing services of what the county's core function is. Um, but you have a lot of other, you know, nonprofit you know, organizations and folks that are saying, hey, you know, we would like money to go towards a lot of these more, you know, from their standpoint, equitable programs and social services. You have some so, problem profiteers too. Yes, there, there's that. <laughs> and so I can, I can definitely dive in on that because that's part of the accountability piece, whether we're talking about Keller Canyon mitigation funds, whether we're talking about the takeover of the Las Madonnas Healthcare District, uh, there's a lack of oversight and accountability in those areas and how those dollars oh, are being spent. So that's definitely <laughs> an area I'm looking to really bring accountability to, uh, to your point, you know, we need to make sure that we have processes in place that are fair, that are being uh, scored based on the ability of the organizations and not just on who knows who. Um, See, and so, I think the Keller Canyon funds, you solve that problem real quick by you kind of put a different supervisor in charge. And then you put District 5 in another mitigation. You kind of flip it. Yeah, but even more so that the accountability, right? So just listen to the name, Keller Canyon Mitigation Fund, right? That fund is supposed to be used to mitigate the impacts of that landfill on the abutting community, right? So, But there's for, some weird stuff funded in that. Absolutely. And so that's, that's once again, from the accountability is that why aren't we putting these funds towards programs, services, infrastructure, whether it's air monitors, whether it's constant cleanup, beautification projects, things that are really impacting the residents in that area, as opposed to giving out to friends and community organizations that are not even in the direct area, but as far out as out here in Antioch, which there's nothing against the community-based organizations themselves, but that fund is to mitigate the impacts of that landfill. So I definitely bring that. There's a passion. Even at the time that I've been on the city council, there was a time, obviously, when you heard about the the bringing of kind of the the, the material from the Superfund fight and, and Superfund Superfund site in San Francisco. There was a lot of uh, media attention on the Keller Canyon landfill, and so we were advocating at that time, working with our staff and working as council members to really highlight the permit and the enforcement that should be carried out by the county to protect the residents that are in that adjacent neighborhood and not enough is being done by the county mm -hmm. as an oversight agency for the impact of the landfill and really the expansion that they're doing on that site to make sure that we're not having uh, the smells, the impact of site uh, and all of the other things in terms of trash that comes into the community. Uh, we need more accountability on that space. And why that's important, and, and just to tie this to a, a very recent story, was you had the West Contra Costa Sanitary Landfill, which is Republic Services, they got fined $160,000 because they weren't doing what they're supposed to do. Right, and that's what you need. You need the county serves as the LEA, the, the, the local enforcement agency of the landfill. And so there's a responsibility by the county to make sure that the permit is being adhered to and to respond to the needs of the residents in that area. And so we definitely want to make sure that we bring that up. Um, but I don't want to deviate too far, even as I, I, I brought up, you know, both Keller Canyon, 
also lost Madonna's healthcare district. Oh, we won't go there's, there. That was a giant screw up too. There's a lot of issues there that we need to rectify. But going back to your Measure X point, I think for me the key focus is is that Measure X is a is a is a revenue source that is not permanent. Right. So when you see these sales tax measures, they go in place. I don't know what the exact sunset may be on that sales tax measure. But when you start creating ongoing programs and costs that are baked into the use of these dollars, how will they be sustained in the event that that uh, revenue is not voted or, or, or reapproved by the voters uh, in the future? And so that's really where my uh, lens is going to be at, is that will this be sustained in the future? Are these one-time commitments? Um, because what we're seeing and what the county staff has already shared with the Board of Supervisors is that the expenditures are growing faster than revenues are coming in, right? Yeah. And so when you have that problem, you have to at some point say, hey, we cannot continue expanding services. We can't continue creating new initiatives when we're struggling just to maintain to fund the very services that we have right now. Yeah, there, there's plenty of pork in the, in the Measure X outgoing funds. And I think at some point that'll be, you know, reined in, not under the current five. Um, but I also think Measure X could be a great thing as long as it enhances the county's, op, you know, services to the community. It, it, it is a great thing. I mean, look what it's done to Contra Costa Fire and the sheriff's office. Thank God now the sheriffs all have body cameras. Yeah, and I think that that's, oh, a, that, that's a big that's a big point right now. I we think. were in twenty twenty three without body cameras on the sheriff deputies. Right, insanity. Right, and I think that this is a big conflict that you're even seeing right now play out with Measure X. Is that I believe it was the chair of the Measure X committee that it shared that there is basically a, a, a split between what departments of the county are asking for and what kind of the Measure X community board is asking for, right? And so, Pick yes, a better you, board. You want to, yes, there, there should be a level of harmony, once again, kind of get to this shared vision, uh, but there's an accountability, right? So if departments are saying that we're struggling to provide the operations and the services currently, right now, we need this funding to make sure that we can sustain ourselves and provide this level of service to the community. <laughs> but then you have others saying, no, we need these new no, services. We're going to add extra added. action right? items. There's a conflict there, right? And I think that is, is so important that supervisors take that into account about not only the fiduciary responsibility that we have with the limited taxpayer dollars, but once again, having these accountability measures and not just saying, hey, we got this money and we got, you know, a bunch of stuff that we can go spend on. Um, because once again, it's not the best way when it comes to governance. We are very limited in our resources and we need to start thinking that way uh, when it comes to accountability. Um, I know we're running tight on time. Infrastructure. We saw last year during the flooding, all the rainstorms. I mean, we got crushed, especially Walnut Creek, Martinez, San Ramon, Danville. Do you think the county did enough in their budget session uh, last year to address some of this? Or is, I mean, do we need to have a serious, like, hey, we need to get these guys funding? Because that report from Public Works scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I mean, they're not even, like, near funded. Right. And, that, and once again, it just goes back to kind of the core services, right? Like, what what is the core service of the county that we're expected to provide to residents? And when you're not taking care of your infrastructure, you're not taking care of your building maintenance, you're not making sure that your departments have the tools and the resources that they need to provide the appropriate level of service, then you start falling behind in a lot of these areas. So 
Uh, I think that these are the tough conversations that you want your board of supervisors to be having or any local agency, but doing it once again through a lens that there's accountability, like what is at a bare minimum, what are the things that we should be doing excellent, right? And can we say that we're providing these services in an excellent manner to the public? And if not, then we say, okay, what do we need to do to improve the current services that we have? And so we just have, you know, kind of this time that we have here in the state of California um, and in our local agencies here in the Bay Area, everybody wants the shiny new thing. And it's like, okay, that shiny new thing is going to cost a lot of money and we don't have the dollars to sustain it. And you're seeing a lot of local agencies that are in real deficits right now because of that type of mindset and that type of spending. Um, and this is what I really want to add to this, right, is that we're living in California, the cost of living continues to skyrocket, right? Um, and so we have a lot of folks who are advocating about the impact that it has on folks who are lower income and in our marginalized communities. But at the same breath, these same organizations and these same officials will support every new tax, every new bond measure, every new thing that can come to the ballot, which ultimately continues to increase in terms of what it costs to live here in the region. So whether your local school board is asking for a new parcel tax for a bond, whether your local agency, your, your city is asking for a new sales tax uh, measure, uh, the East Bay you know, Regional Park District is going to ask you for something, BART's going to ask you for something, there's going to be regional transportation measures. And all of this just adds to the cost burden on our local residents. And we got to connect those dots and say, hey, you already have money. There's already plenty of revenues coming in. We tout that we're one of the largest economies in the world. Why is it that we don't have a revenue issue? We have a spending issue. Um, and that really has to be at the forefront when it comes to our local government. Um, you have Supervisor Burgess unopposed. She'll be back on the board. Ken Carlson, Candace Anderson, John Joya, throwing you into that, that dynamic, um, how do you think you all work together? I think it'll work great. I think that the best thing about local government or just even talking about democracy in itself is that you want, you know, differing and various views and thought, right? If everybody's thinking the same way, it doesn't create much of a, of a conversation. It doesn't bring enough viewpoints to the conversation, I think for myself, I really pride myself on being able to be objective. I really lean in in terms of being free from any type of political, you know, affiliation or ties that will kind of, you know, blind or skew how I come to the decision making process. Um, and we see a lot of that in the Bay Area. And so in terms of working with the other board of supervisors, I think it's important. You know, you can look at what's happened in the city of Pittsburgh. You know, we have a very uh, 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 cohesive. Y'all are, are different, but you're cohesive. Right, exactly. Exactly. And it is it doesn't mean that we all think the same way. It doesn't mean that we all look at the, the policies and the priorities the same. But there's a level of professionalism. There's an understanding that, hey, we're all just one vote. Uh, we all represent different members in the community. But when we come together, we represent the entirety of the community. And I think we're, uh, we're seeing a lack of that in a lot of our local government institutions and bodies where it becomes more about individuals than it is about the jurisdiction and the people that they're representing. Um, and so for me, I look forward to working with all the other members of the Board of Supervisors, getting to know them uh, personally, but also working with them professionally 
professionally uh, because the reality is that we're overseeing, you know, the county has a $5.5 billion budget. That's a massive organization, right? So when folks are considering who they're going to vote for, it isn't just about saying all the nice things that I'm going to give you or the nice things that we need to do. It's can you manage efficiently? Can you be able to look at an organization and understand all the levers, right? So from your, your labor standpoint and making sure that your workers are excited and there's an environment for them to come to work and to do their best to policies and being responsive to addressing community needs. And then also, as we've been talking about the long-term planning, do you have a vision and can you set something that the rest of the community can get behind and work towards? And I think we need those type of leaders in office um, and always reminding ourselves that we're public servants. You know, we're not here as kingmakers, but we're here to serve uh, and we're here to make sure that people's lives are ultimately being improved. Do you, hypothetically, do you think this is the first year really endorsements don't matter? I mean, because I, I, I don't want to get into this too much, but I'm hearing through the grapevine, a lot of the people on the union boards voted for their person and endorsed. A lot of the members are not happy. Do you think this is the first time where really endorsements don't matter? Yeah, I think this is more so just understanding that that there's more information out there, right? And so you have political structures, you have leadership. So everybody has their kind of their place, different unions and different special interest groups, and they do their endorsements. But I think people are looking at the reality of what's happening on an everyday basis. And so if you have, you know, membership, you know, and the leadership decides to go a certain way, it may be because of political pressure. Uh, a lot of times, once again, this is a lot of kingmakers. So they're saying, hey, this is the next dub person to be in this position. Let's all get behind they're them. They're on the machine. Right. And so the machine is real. Um, and I say that from a perspective for the viewers and those who are listening, you know, there's a lot of things that happen, you know, in terms of kind of the politics, uh, organizations and groups that support each other. Um, and so that doesn't mean I think we see the same thing when it comes to, say, just a different demographic group, whether we're talking about African-Americans. Right. And there's just thought that, oh, all African-Americans, they're Democrat, they're going to vote Democrat. And that's just the way it is. You know, there's a lot of that out there right now. So all the viewers that are listening right now, no, I am not a registered Democrat. Um, I, I'm proud to say that I'm nonpartisan. I'm not registered to any political party, never have been. Um, but I understand the the need or the, the purpose for political parties. Uh, but once again, when we're talking about what's happening at the local level, nobody cares what your party affiliation is. They care, are you going to get the job done? Do you understand what you're being hired to do? And I think that when we bring back that context of, are you fit for the job? Are you fit for the job? Can you speak to the issues? Do you have a vision? Do you have the character, the integrity? Can you speak truth, right? Can you stand up and say no uh, when a certain special interest group that may be supporting you comes to you with something that's not in the best interest of the county as a whole? Can you say no? I bring this up and I've shared it a number of times with folks that have heard me during this campaign is that we have a state senator, Senator Glazer, who, who is uh, retiring and he won't be seeking uh, election to the state Senate. But he had put out an op-ed uh, some time back and he said, you know what, we've put a lot of money into a lot of spaces here in California and homelessness and dealing with housing and a lot of these different areas, but we don't have any results to show for it. And he says, ultimately, we have to be held accountable for that. And so he's talking specifically about the Democratic Party saying there's no one else to blame. We run everything from the governorship all the way down to the local city councils. So we have to make sure that we're held accountable for that. And so the thing he was uh, followed up and asked was, well, why is that? Why, why aren't things happening? 
Well, he said it's simple. He says we have a lot of friends. We have labor friends. We have environmental friends, all of our advocacy groups. And the problem is, is that we can't tell any of them no. So the environmentalists want something, we concede to them. The labor unions want something, we concede to them. The advocacy groups want something, we concede to them. And by the time we adopt a policy, it's really of no effect because we've made concessions to everybody that has essentially made policy of no effect. So we put money in housing, no housing is getting built because whether environmentalists are pushing back on it, unions maybe want a project labor agreement, it may drive up the cost. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. And if you can't stand and be objective, if you can't stand and say, hey, I know that, you know, I have support from whatever group it may be, but when it comes to this policy matter, this is in the best interest of the county, and we need independent thinkers. We need people who can think objectively and not be beholden to all the different special interest groups. And I say that respectfully, meaning that all of these groups have a purpose, but when you tilt the scales in one direction or the other, it creates bad policy, and we've had enough of that because it's yielded no results in California and in our local communities. Yeah, so... In closing, and, and I know we could go longer, but why are you the better candidate as opposed to your two opponents? Yeah. Um, so I think, once again, from the objective standpoint, kind of being independent from a lot of the special interests, I think that that is something that really sets me apart from the other candidates in the field. Uh, you have candidates that when they announce that, hey, I'm a Democrat councilman, um, then you have others who are depending on all of the political endorsements in order to, you know, get them voted in. And so I share that is that we need candidates that will speak specifically to the issues. I think that in this short time that we've had here, that voters can can listen and uh, hear that, you know, I'm ready to talk specifically to a lot of the different issues that we're facing. And then once again, get to really kind of the underlining issues of why we're not seeing progress within our communities. Um, so I have the experience, I believe my past eight years in the city of Pittsburgh, uh, being able to not only see what's happening locally on the ground in our communities, but looking at a regional level, serving on policy committees for the uh, League of California Cities, being able to see kind of how these conversations are formulating in the region and uh, statewide. Uh, my experience working for the city of Oakland uh, as uh, uh, at this commission as an analyst has really opened up my eyes to good governance. I think it's been kind of a gift in itself is that being in a larger city where a lot of these conversations have been happening for past decades, right? So I hear conversations happening in Oakland and then five years later, we're starting to have them here in Contra Costa County. So it's giving me a front row seat to say, hey, I've seen this policy try. Oh, you want to adopt this new department? I've seen a city do that. Did it work? Did it not work? And so I think it gives me a unique perspective in that. But overall, I believe I'm an independent voice, a trustworthy voice for the residents of Contra Costa County that brings experience uh, that brings a level of integrity uh, and I want to make sure that we're actually getting results and we're not just talking rhetoric we're not just putting out the narrative that we see happening politically but we're living in the reality of the limited resources that we have and that we're held accountable ultimately for the decisions that we're making and the impact that it's having on the lives of the residents yeah I mean saying all that and it just and again <laughs> I'm gonna drag this out a little bit longer You've had a board of supervisors that after a pandemic, I mean, you had all this money. Let's say the economy goes the other way. I mean, there's some serious tough decisions that will have to be made. And you get into the objectiveness, the measurables. I don't know if that's even a part of this current county board of supervisors. 
Yeah, and they have they have they have some <laughs> performance measurements for for some departments, but I think when you're looking at the totality of what the goals of the county are um, and putting in you know whatever indicators will allow us to see if we're moving towards those goals, um, but even more so once again from this kind of this fiscal responsibility standpoint, right? There are specific services whether you're talking about health services and the running of the hospitals and our emergency centers, uh, whether you're talking about the public defender's office, the DA's office, the sheriff's office. A lot of the a lot of the services that the county receives its revenue from and the programs that it institutes are from state and federal dollars. Things that are mandated that have to be carried out that have specific requirements for them. Um, and then there's an even l- more limited pot of of money, we talk about general fund dollars that go towards some of these other services that we're seeing constantly expanded. And I think once again, the lens is it's not about trying to expand all these services and be all to everything, because I think that that's the kind of the fallacy or kind of the myth is that government can solve all these problems. I think there's a level of collaboration. I think there has to be a willingness to say, hey, we understand this problem in the community, but we're not the best suit to address it, right? To be able to say that honestly, I think, is something that we need leaders who will do. Um, And then once again, be able to work collaboratively with our nonprofits and other organizations. I think a larger part, and I think it's a conversation with the county now, is that we need to uh, increase the capacity of our local nonprofit organizations. That's a big part. When you look at West County or the Greater Bay Area, they have major foundations, major nonprofits who can pour in millions of dollars or provide hundreds of thousands of dollars to local community-based organizations to do meaningful work in these spaces. But if that burden is always on local government, then we're constantly trying to put money in spaces that we don't have enough resources to sustain. Final question, because I want to end on a positive. Pick one thing that you are most proud of during your time on the Pittsburgh City Council. Wow. Uh, One is definitely the investment that we've made in youth services and youth development. So we brought back our marina center um, is open to the community, um, and so we have a lot of great programming that's happening there. And I think for me overall, I'm really long-term planning. So uh, we adopted uh, the um, Economic Development Strategic Action Plan prior to coming to council. We didn't have a cohesive plan around economic development, so we saw the consolidation to create an economic development department within our community development, uh, which has really allowed us to move forward in a space and provide the level of service that will be able able to attract business uh, and work with our business community. So really excited about economic development. And I think the key piece for me is the accountability around creating kind of the government measurements and opening up transparency uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. And so one area that we've seen with this, even as we're closing out, is that prior to coming to council, all of our subcommittee meetings were kind of done. I don't want to say behind closed doors. They were agenda. No, they were behind closed doors. Okay, well, you said it, and, and I, I will agree with you there. Um, and nobody really knew about what was going on in subcommittees. And for those who are listening, subcommittees is really where all the sausage making happened. So the conversations about policies and directions were going to move. So my frustration was we were having our city council meetings and nobody was really reporting out about what happened at the subcommittee meetings. And then we were getting these policy or these budget items. And it was like, oh, you just vote on it, vote yes. The subcommittee already looked at it. And so what I did was I advocated for our subcommittee meetings to be video recorded and to make publicly accessible on our website. So now the public can see these conversations that are happening in our standing subcommittees and be able to weigh in and be able to see kind of the thought process of our decision makers and how we're having conversations about all these critical areas that are impacting the folks in our city. Yeah, I think a lot of times government forgets the why. They don't explain the why mm-hmm. or how they got to the why. Right. 
Um, all right, we're going to end this because <laughs> we could keep going. Um, so for those of you that want to get in touch with Jelani, his website's jelanikillings.com. He also has a Facebook page. Um, Jelani, has been a pleasure. I, I, I think after last week, I hadn't seen you in a, a long time. Yeah. So it's good to finally catch up, and I hope this helps voters somewhat make a decision. I, I, again, I can't believe we have an election March 5th. No one's right. talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely want to encourage everybody go out, look up candidates, get the information uh, and make sure you exercise your right to vote. Ballots will be going out next week. Uh, and make sure you get it turned in, whether you go to a drop box, uh, whether you mail it back or whether you wait till election day on March 5th. But make sure you get out there, you vote uh, because it's so important, especially at the local level. A lot of folks feel they have apathy. My vote really doesn't matter. But we saw in the last election we had, I believe, a tie in the city of Richmond. In the city of Antioch, what it was split between maybe one vote or two votes. Two votes. Right? And so your your vote definitely matters uh, when it comes to bringing accountability and what happens at the local level. And I hope that you just do your due diligence and really find out in terms of uh, how these candidates, you know, stack up on the issues and how they speak to them. And ultimately how, you know, their leadership will be able to improve the quality of life and create better outcomes for the residents in the county. Well, with that, Jelani, thank you so much. For everyone else, do me a favor, hit like, subscribe, and share, and I will see you next time. For all your local news, ContraCosta.news. Take care.